0: Before I get into the poem, I wanted to share a little something. Um, this morning I watched Sunday Morning, which I do every Sunday when I can, and uh, the musician Pharrell Williams was pressed to explain his overwhelming sense of gratitude about his success with the song Happy. And, and he said, uh, he used the metaphor of a kite, a high-flying kite, and he said, it's not the kite. It's the air, and for us, whatever we are able to, to do in this life, we know that Jesus Christ is the heir. The job description is always the same. The servant of God must bend at the knee, be humble in spirit, obedient to God's word, and prepared for persecution. The manual is quite clear. Ask dear Isaiah, who was mocked and reviled as was every prophet. How did Isaiah stand it? How did he continue to preach and teach? Perhaps the word of God coated Isaiah's ears like oil, leaving no traction for whatever mockery might come. It's hard to say. One might suffer persecution with a hint of pride, but to be spat upon could test anyone's religion. Yet the prophets stood. Isaiah stood. And Jesus? Vindication ran like a river of blood inside the chalice of his body, and as we commune with him, the misery of mockery and pain of persecution melts away. This next scripture is Philippians 2 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
1: morning, everyone. Well, today is Palm Sunday, Um, as Jay said, and we do remember the triumphal entry. Uh, It is an amazing story, and we'll get into that, but it's fascinating to me because the driving force of Christ's ministry and Christ's life and what leads him to the triumphal entry in the first place is his passion and his crucifixion. Uh, in Palm Sunday, uh, when you read the story, it reminds me of a parade of sorts. Uh, when I lived in new Orleans, I saw a lot of parades actually, Mardi Gras, some of the most famous parades, uh, in the world. And, um, just a really fun time they have, you know, it's a family event really to bring kids out to the parades and everything. Um, I also became acquainted with a totally different concept of a parade, which surrounded a new Orleans funeral. Uh, when um, someone would die and they would have a funeral, uh, they would you know do the mass at the church, and then they would lead a procession from the church to the cemetery, uh, and it would be like a parade. Uh, and they would have a jazz band, and it would, they would be playing dirges. It would be very somber and mourning. And uh, when they interned the, the person, uh, they would have a ceremony. Then the parade would go back. But on the way back, it wouldn't be sorrowful anymore. They would, the trumpets would come up and they would play uh, when the saints go marching in and it would be like a, a party almost, you know. Uh, and you know, it's kind of, a, they didn't always do it, but kind of the caricature is that they would all have umbrellas and they would be doing this move, you know. Um, and it's kind of an interesting concept if you think about it because they're you know, mourning the, the loss of a loved one on the way to the cemetery. But on the way back, they're celebrating that that person has gone on to the afterlife. And uh, it's a really interesting concept, and it's kind of neat when you think about it. It's definitely a cognitive dissonance if you're not used to it. And Jesus' triumphal entry is a little bit of the same cognitive dissonance. It's just in an inverse proportion. You see Jesus enter the city with this cheering, celebrating. You can almost picture them with the palm fronds going, yes, yes, Lord. Um, and he's the center of everything and being honored by the people. And all these symbols are amazing. Uh, as Jay already said this morning, you know, coming in on a donkey, he's not the conquering king, but he is the peaceful and benevolent uh, Messiah. He is the bringer of, of peace. And the palm fronds as well, uh, just these symbols of, of putting an end to, to struggle. Um, and as they approach Jerusalem um, it just seems very like a very like something very good is going to happen and people have no idea what's going to happen um, and it really is just a miraculous event when you look at how Jesus chooses to enter the city but he is marching towards his death um, and he is squarely fixed on this mission he knows what's coming he has prophesied it he is Uh, told everyone that is close to him about it, and Jesus even knows, he says later on in Matthew uh, 26, I think, that, you know, going to Jerusalem means almost certain death for a prophet, and that Jesus doesn't avoid this at all. Um, You know, the Gospels record him going through Bethany and the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the city of Jerusalem, and so When he comes down into the city, this is happening at the East Gate, which is where the prophets say the Messiah will enter the city. Um, So Jesus is choosing this path to take hold of this office. He is declaring himself the Messiah by going down this path. And two interesting things happen in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke after the triumphal entry. We see in Matthew, Jesus goes into the temple and he starts overturning the tables. Um, And then in Luke, we see Jesus offer just a very somber prayer for Jerusalem, that he is just in anguish over the state of affairs. And this whole picture that Jesus is painting in this one action really demonstrates that he knows who he is and what he is doing and what the Pharisees are going to accuse him of and what they're going to do to him, and he is not shying away from it at all. He is embracing this office as the true Messiah, but not the Messiah that the people are wanting and, and looking for. Jesus is embracing this idea of the suffering servant, and he is, he is taking actions deliberately, not only to, to declare himself and who he is, but also that will lead to his crucifixion. He is going down the path of the prophets and not the path of the people. And Jesus has this crowd that's about ready to make him king. Um, He has this unique opportunity for self-aggrandizing, but he chooses instead to be self-giving. He chooses instead a servant legacy. And while Isaiah 53 uh, is perhaps the most well-known picture of the suffering servant, um, today's passage from Isaiah is part of a 15-chapter kind of spread of just a series of songs about who the Messiah is, um, that the person of the, and the role of the Messiah is a humble servant that endures much suffering to save his people. And there are kind of three levels of suffering that isaiah uh, outlines he talks about how uh, i gave my back to those who strike talking about the physical side of suffering but then gets more into it my cheeks to those who pull out the beard Uh, there's actually a story in the old testament about how uh, one group of uh, people kind of raids another group of people and instead of physically you know hurting them in any way they just shave off their beards Cause it's a huge sign of shame, uh, a huge, huge disgrace to lose your beard. Um, and then I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And you have kind of these three levels of physical suffering, uh, ostracism and shame and rejection, and then just the mental anguish of, uh, of waiting for God alone to vindicate. Mark Twain said, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. And I think much of the Bible's context of shame is lost on us in a Western culture. We kind of just have this vague idea of guilt, which is really more about feeling guilty um, and almost just kind of the idea of embarrassment. But in other cultures and in the Near Eastern setting, you know, we have this shame, which is a powerful force opposite of honor. And... Shame is just associated directly with wrongdoing. Um, and you think of, you know, like feudal Japan, where if a uh, commander was to lose a battle, the honorable thing for him to do would be to kill himself rather than to live with the shame of losing. Um, you see that even up through World War II. And that is perhaps the most striking and the most clear thing that comes out of this Isaiah passage is that It's not so much about the physical suffering in this passage, but the shame of being completely forsaken by one's own people, being antagonized and ostracized and having nowhere to turn. And then God comes in and the vindication of God is powerful that to God alone can we turn to be honored. And it's it's a subversive thing this messiah is doing embracing this shame in order to demonstrate the love of God Uh, and it overcomes the world and it declares a person innocent when the world wants to condemn them and it reveals character that it could only be created by God and this idea of the suffering servant uh, just shows how much selflessness Um, And I think that this particular reflection of Isaiah 50, to me, uh, it's a reflection in Jesus' heart when he's saying, I have promised them life in the fullest. Not life dictated by the world's uh, shallow ways, not life dictated by shame and honor, but life dictated by God's vindication. And that not an easy life, not a holy, enjoyable life, but life in the fullest that makes a difference in the lives of others, even if our own suffering is the, the way that that comes about. I think Jesus embraces this picture of Messiah as he's on his mission just bearing up under all the wrongs that others are are doing against him. Um, And he challenges us. This is a huge challenge to me reading these passages because I don't go out of my way for other people. Um, I struggle with how I can actually love my neighbors. You know, I often think, um, you know, in Romans 12, Paul says, you know, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with your fellow man. Well, I'm a nine, so I just think, well, that means just staying out of the way of everybody else. That'll let them do their thing, and I'll just do my thing, and we won't, you know? But, um, but Christ inserts himself into the world around him specifically to suffer for it. And self-giving love is how we redeem the world, by subverting the world and listening to the way of Jesus. And it really comes, the suffering servant comes into full perspective through this passage in Philippians. Philippians 2. Uh, The triumphal entry culminates in Christ's passion, Christ's emptying, Christ's uh, kenosis is what it's called in Greek. Uh, And to understand the Philippians 2 passage, I mean, it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Uh, It's extremely powerful, but I want to look at the cultural setting. Uh, The Roman colony of Philippi, which is where Paul is writing the story of Christ and this message of Christ's passion. Uh, is a very famous city, actually. It was the first Greek city taken over by Philip II of Macedonia. And uh, he used, they had gold mines, so he used the gold to amass a huge army. And his son, Alexander the Great, went on to conquer the known world at the time, use it from Philippi as their base of operations and their base of uh, finance. And it's interesting because uh, Philip II had become sort of a cult-following figure in the city of Philippi. There was actually, at the time of Paul's writing, a group that still worshipped him and that attributed to him a kind of a seat of deity. And he had this epitaph that was written by a Greek historian named Diodorus who wrote uh, that Philip had made himself the greatest king in Europe in his time. And because of the extent of his kingdom, had himself enthroned a companion of the twelve gods, and this is kind of a precursor to a custom in Philippi of writing just grandiose epitaphs about yourself. Uh, archaeological records have um, shown that you know everyone uh, would just write kind of they call a cursus honorum, just an honor list of like I did this and I did that and I and uh, just hundreds of them. Um, 200 years later, uh, by this time, Philippi had become a Roman colony. A group of Roman soldiers had uh, come into it and and established a very Roman culture around it, but uh, it was the battleground for Brutus. Uh, Brutus made his last stand against Octavian and Mark Antony. And so Philippi had this very rich appeal to the people of Rome. It was an italic colony, which means that Uh, It was one of the few colonies that enjoyed all the rights and all the privileges as though it was part of the Italian mainland in Rome. And so the people of Philippi uh, honored and at times worshiped military might. The ascent of the social stratus was the chief focus of their lives. They were a very proud people, and they felt honored more than probably any other colony or any other group in Greece. Um and as I said, the Romans in general had this social stratification and um and they made these lists uh to kind of honor themselves. And uh, later on in Philippians 3, Paul actually gives a similar list. He says, Look, you shouldn't brag about what's happening in the flesh, but if you want to, then I'll go first, and I actually am better than you. <laughs> but then he turns, flips it around, and he says, but that's completely worthless. Uh, he actually uses an expletive in Greek for uh, rubbish or filth, or uh, bs would be the explanation that I would, the translation I would use. He says that's all nothing. Uh, so he's he's really speaking to this proud and not even arrogant by choice, but arrogant just by association group of people, and saying we need to we need to subvert. Uh, the way that you guys think about the world by realizing that it doesn't matter how great you are. And some people have, have postulated that uh, this kenosis passage is kind of an ancient hymn or a, a Christian song that people would sing, but I think it is, in fact, Christ's honor, cursus honorum. This is what makes Christ the greatest And when you look at it, it is, the first three verses are descending. The first three verses are not things that anyone would ever be proud of. To these people, Paul preaches Christ as a self-sacrificing, culture-subverting, honor-forsaking, shame-embracing, suffering servant, and that he is their Messiah. And everything about this letter to the Philippians revolves around this passage. It says in verse five, this, make this your attitude, or this is how you should think, which is also in Christ Jesus. So this is Christ's attitude as the essential, the key element of our spiritual journey, which is humility. Uh, We are either becoming more humble or we are rebelling against our own redemption. I think this picture of Christ in Philippians 2 is deeply informed by the Gospels. Uh, just shortly before the triumphal entry, Jesus says, uh, Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Before the Last Supper, Jesus is seen washing the disciples' feet, acknowledging that he does not claim a place of honor for himself, that he claims the lowest place. And as I said, it's the first three verses you see a descent, just a steady build downwards it says uh, just a second there we go. It says being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be prized. Um, that's shocking. Uh, the one person that does have a right to claim a kingship or a high place does not. I think that uh, that verse itself brings me back to Genesis 3, um, that Adam and Eve and the serpent said, being God-likeness is something you should strive for, something that you should take. And Jesus is, in fact, directly confronting that mentality, saying, taking the... Or, he did not count equality with God something to be prized or grasped or taken. Um, and I think we do the same thing. I know I do. I make myself kind of God in my own heart and that I can do whatever I want to um, and especially to establish myself as superior to someone or something around me. But it takes a deliberate correction of that to find this humble attitude of Christ. He selflessly gave all that he had, the form of God, to come to earth to serve and to save men. Verse 7 continues, talks about his humility, he said, made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. It's interesting, that form of a servant and emptying himself this is where we tie in the shame. Again, Paul is speaking to a Roman audience. They don't like slaves. Slaves don't have citizenship. They're not a part of the social up, upward movement. Um, they have no mobility. And Christ chose the lowest rank. And just calls to mind the depth of Christ's humiliation from the servant songs. Here in Philippi, it's the center of Roman pride, and Paul presents Christ as humbled and poor. Again, the Son of Man did not come to be served; he came to serve and give His life a ransom for many. And verse eight is the zenith of this entire passage. Talks about Christ's obedience. Said, so, being in found of human appearance, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think in the wake of simple embarrassment, uh, let alone extreme humiliation and shame, we would just buck and be uncomfortable and strive and try to figure any way to get out of it. Um, But Christ's response to his own humiliation and his own shame is to be obedient and to stand firm, to be resilient. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the descent down the road of humility ends at the cross. Uh, the vilest form of punishment, it was uh, only for non-citizens in the Roman Empire. If you were a citizen, you couldn't be crucified. But... Uh, And it was also considered a heinous curse, uh, according to Jewish reckoning. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, uh, which is from Deuteronomy 23.21. And so for, for the Roman military types in the crowd, this is intense when they're hearing this. This is the opposite perhaps, of what they wanted to think of the King of Kings being and doing. But in verse 9, the emphasis swings from the ultimate sacrifice to the ultimate exaltation. It's, I mean, it's very epic in nature when you think of the build-up and then what happens afterwards. Uh, everything seems to have gone wrong. Something, you know, Christ is dying on the cross... There's despair and agony and uh, confusion amongst the disciples. and, And then at the last possible moment, good triumphs over evil. That's the preeminent nature of story. The story of the gospel is the story of redemption. Christ is victorious precisely because he does not try to save himself. Matthew 16, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then lastly, verses 10 and 11 show Jesus' authority. With the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And just that catch-all, heaven, earth, under the earth, it's this emphatic all things that the Creator will once again rule over creation. And that last phrase to the glory of God the Father, uh, this entire picture of Christ's condescension, of his death and resurrection, of the path that led him to the cross, and his subsequent subsequent exaltation, it's seen in the framework of doing God's will. That God is glorified because Christ endured much suffering. Christ is exalted because he underwent the suffering servant path. And just as Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. And I think, just as a recap, I mean, this this entire passage, Philippians, is the idea is to give the audience a better understanding of humility. Humility is not self-loathing. It's not self-hatred. We see that Christ empties himself, um, and in so doing, he actually takes on, again, that person person of a slave, that person of a suffering servant. Mm -hmm. He's not adding a lowly estate to himself to somehow be browbeating or uh, self-despising, but he is making room in himself to love others. Um, And true humility is not thinking lowly of oneself, but not thinking of oneself before others. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And with that, I would like to move to a time of response and conversation um, Really, grow in our understanding as a community of this, and so I have some questions, uh, and uh, you know, if you have any, if there's anything else that spoke to you or that God is putting on your heart to say, then please, please share it with us. And, and uh, this is my favorite part of the whole message. So, uh, how are we doing as a community at working out our salvation, which is what Paul says to do after he gives this picture of Jesus, verse Philippians 2.12, in light of this humility passage, this kenosis passage. Uh, What do shame and honor look like in our culture? Or where, what I mean by that, and I know what shame and honor look like in our culture, but where is Christ calling us to subvert our culture through humility? Because shame and honor was the bullseye back then. Uh, what would be subversive humility of What would the sub- subversive humility of Christ look like in our city? How can we embrace the mindset of Christ as suffering servants? Yeah, I think I mean everyone had so much good stuff. Like I'm mean, just I'm just trying to sum it up right now. That uh, it just sounds like you guys are saying a lot of things about motive and image and how. I mean, really having this attitude of Christ is having that true motive and getting past the false motives that, that drive everything in our culture. And that belonging really is about community and, and unity, which is Paul's, like, desperate cry to the Philippians, is be united in this image.
0: So.